Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Aaron Goings. Aaron is an associate professor of history at St. Martin's University in Washington and the author of a new book called The Port of Missing Men, about capitalism and labor and violence in the Pacific Northwest. The book is out now through the University of Washington Press, just came out at the end of 2020. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ryan. Uh, Really good to be here. So, Aaron, before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, Yeah, that's quite the question. Um, So I'm a Pacific Northwesterner. I lived most of my life in the Pacific Northwest with a couple of stretches in Canada and in Europe. And uh, right now I live in Tacoma with with my wife and our dog and our kitties. so I'm, I'm a historian, mostly interested in labor, social, and immigration history. Uh, I work at a small school near the state capital of Olympia, Washington. Uh, it's called St. Martin's University. I teach all kinds of things there. Uh, I did a lot of my research and writing on the book we're going to talk about um, and some other projects. Uh, during my two stretches in Finland, uh, 2014, 2015 on a Fulbright, and then 2017 to 2019 uh, when I was at the University of Tampere. Uh, yeah, so thinking about my life and some significant turning points, I guess. Uh, so I grew up in Aberdeen, uh, an old lumber town in Grays Harbor County, uh, one of Washington's coastal areas and uh, the rainiest part of the continental United States. Uh, if you've ever heard of Aberdeen, it's probably because of Nirvana, which came from the city, uh, or yeah, or you've driven through on the way to the Olympic Peninsula or Washington's beaches. Uh, Aberdeen's also the setting for this book, and it has a really rich, dramatic working class history. Uh, so, uh, like so many Pacific Coast cities, Aberdeen is very hilly, and the area's socioeconomic relations uh, really closely mirror its elevation. Uh, I grew up there in the 80s and 90s in very much a working-class family, and we lived at the bottom of the hill. Uh, back then, there were still a lot of rich families uh, with houses, often old mansions on the hill. And I'm being quite serious now. Uh, we're recording this in uh, November and there's a lot of rain going on outside my house. But uh, so uh, we would get so much rain, usually three times as much as Seattle, uh, that garbage from up the hill would run down into our front yard. Uh, sort of an obvious illustration about how class works in the U.S. Uh, so this was a very highly unionized and very democratic area. It was the only county in Washington state that went for the Democrats in every presidential election between the Depression and Donald Trump, sort of mirroring the, uh, the large parts of the Midwest um, as it switched from blue to red in 2016. Uh, And as so much of this region's lumber economy is now shut down, leaving shuttered mills behind, I've sometimes referred to the area and surrounding counties as the Northwest Rust Belt. Uh, But I got through high school in the late 90s, and community college was still really affordable. So I went to Grace Harbor College, got my AAA, then 
along the way, bachelors and masters. Um, Along the way, I picked up, uh, like so many people, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, uh, which really changed things. It opened my eyes to this history of conflict, history of empire, of oppression, and those on the bottom of society coming together to collectively challenge those in power. Uh, There was even a couple sentences about my hometown, really kind of surprising uh, to this always wet, always gray area that always seemed so boring to me, and it turned it into a dynamic center of historic change and conflict for me. So uh, about that same time in 2001, the pulp mill where my dad worked and where I had worked uh, went on strike. The workers went on strike. And I spent several nights on picket lines. We did roving pickets to a hotel where scabs were staying. Um, And it was just quite the experience talking to uh, blue collar workers overnight, um, hearing about on the job deaths, um, hearing stories of injured and killed workers. Uh, Not long after that, I went to Canada to uh, Simon Fraser to do my PhD. I wanted to work with Mark Lear, who's written some brilliant books on labor and anarchist history. Uh, He's also really funny and kind, easy person to work with. Uh, So I I burned through a few dissertation topics. Uh, I I wanted to write a transnational history of the radical union, the industrial workers of the world, often called the Wobblies, uh, before settling on my dissertation, which was a labor and community study of uh, Grace Harbor, this area that I've been talking about um, with a heavy focus on employer uh, solidarity, working class solidarity and conflict. So Aaron, is this how you came to write about Billy Gould, right? This is really the inspiration then behind it. Yeah. So uh, along the way, I also spent about a year, uh, probably why the dissertation took me so long, um, uh, looking into the life of uh, this this guy who I, I wrote this book about, uh, uh, Billy Gould, um, and uh, and what I wanted to do in this book, um, the inspiration behind it was I I really figured that if, if lucky a historian gets to write a couple books in their lives maybe maybe three. Uh, but uh, I wanted to write a labor and community history of Pacific Northwest lumber. Uh, there's so many of these books about mining communities in the Mountain West that are just so so influential, whether it's Betsy Jameson's book, All That Glitters. Uh, but there, there's, I don't know, at least a dozen of those. Um, and there's nothing really remotely similar about lumber, lumber and labor, uh, community-based uh, uh labor studies. And the lumber industry was, in the first half of the 20th century, the largest industry in the area by far in the Northwest. So, um, but in writing this book, I also wanted to write something that would perhaps lure a lot of people into reading this labor history. And so I set out researching this very, uh, at least regionally, uh, well-known guy named Billy Gould, uh, who's uh, a community and union activist in the early 20th century. Uh, He's also one of the most famous people in the history of Washington's Olympic Peninsula, 
Um, but as you can probably guess, he's not famous uh, for his union activism. He's famous because he's known uh, for his dastardly deeds as America, one of America's worst serial killers. Uh, if anyone hasn't, just from the title of this podcast, you might Google him. And there's uh, just endless accounts written by journalists uh, and true crime buffs. I mean, there's dozens, if not hundreds. Uh, in Aberdeen, my hometown, there's a bar and grill called Billy's, uh, named for Ghoul. And uh, it, it's actually a pretty good place if you are on your way through town. Um, but, uh, but the story always seemed a bit ridiculous to me, uh, as I'm sure we'll get into more. Uh, it really, uh, the story of Ghoul um, really downplayed his life, his work, his activism, and it completely removed social class. Um, and like so many popular books written about sailors, he was a sailor, a migratory worker. Uh, it really, so many of the studies seemed rather condescending toward working people, um, often punching downward, um, portraying working class people as unintelligent, as violent, as failures who had to resort to violence and lived lives of vice here in this so-called land of opportunity. Uh, so Aaron, you know, Billy Gould had this popular reputation before you wrote this book. Um, what was it? And I mean, I'm wondering about how public uh, historians and scholars understood his legacy um, and how people wrote about him before, before your book. Right. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. So no, actually no scholars have uh, ever mentioned uh, Ghoul. No academic histories have brought him up. But um, many of the most famous uh, Northwest journalists, uh, Murray Morgan, Stuart Holbrook, and others have written about him. Um, and he is he is quite famous in the region. Like I said, uh, dozens, if not hundreds of, uh, pieces written about him. Um, but it, it folk, all of these stories focus on what I call the myth of the ghoul of Gray's Harbor. Uh, these, these stories that ghoul was a serial killer that he, uh, was, uh, that he spent his entire life moving from town to town, seeking out new victims and always staying one step ahead of the police that he used his uh, position as you, uh, as a union agent in the sailors union of the Pacific to uh, terrorize the waterfront. I believe that's a direct quote from one of the store, uh, one of the uh, pieces written about him. Um, but what I found, uh, so I set out writing to write this book in part to, uh, uh, talk about Ghoul as potentially a criminal, but also to use him as a lens into the wider, uh, social and labor history of the region. Um, but what I found was so interesting and dramatically different, uh, from what the previous stories had told, uh, Along the way, after, uh, I did on and off research on Ghoul for almost 20 years. Uh, it seemed clear that not only were the stories written about Ghoul mostly free of context, they were also based on lies, exaggerations, and rumors spread by Ghoul's enemies. That 
this story of Ghoul, the serial killer, emerged in the minds of his enemies uh, among the employing class and among conservative um, anti-labor journalists in early 1910. Um, after years of an investigation led by labor spies, really an a, a investigation to remove him from office. Um, that, to be clear, uh, what I found was something very different and I think more interesting was that Ghoul was certainly not a serial killer, but instead a devoted labor activist who spent his life working on behalf of uh people he called comrades. Mm-hmm. Aaron, could you also tell us then a little bit about his early life before and after he arrives in Aberdeen? Right. Uh, so uh, as one could probably expect, because we are talking here about a person who spent their lives in the working class, um, we don't know that much about his early life. He's uh, somewhat anonymous. Um, so what we're left with are fragments of his life um, really points to the difficulties of writing uh, uh, biographies of the majority of people. Um, So he grew up uh, in Germany um, and he moved to the United States at some point in the late 19th century. uh, And he was a migratory laborer. He spent uh, uh, decades working uh, between jobs, of course, as a, uh, as a sailor, as a uh, merchant seaman, but also, uh, uh, which is what he was doing in, at the time of the 1910 census. He then uh, moved to Alaska for a short time, again, working as a laborer uh, in mining and in construction. Um, he did that before he moved to Aberdeen in 1902, 1903, eventually settling in uh, Aberdeen and becoming the uh, union for the sa- uh, union agent for the Sailors Union of the Pacific. And this life that he lived, it's so I'm so glad that that you asked about it because uh, I think when most people think about uh, uh, industrial America and industrializing America, we tend to think with good reason about factories and about mines. Um, But the lives of sailors, uh, working class seamen was just a life of, of brutality. And so much of the book that I've written here talks about these brutal lives of uh, merchant seamen um, and also the people he lived around in in Aberdeen, mostly lumber and uh, lumber workers and longshoremen. These were workers who were injured and killed at a horrific rate uh, on the job um, in Aberdeen, in Grays Harbor, and in other port cities. The sailors, like Gould, too, were um, they were migratory workers. They, uh, they were essentially homeless. Uh, they lived without permanent homes. When they arrived in port cities, they slept aboard ships or in shacks or in boarding houses. Uh, sailors were also fairly, uh, un- unusual because according to, uh, the law of the land, they were not actually, uh, included, um, in, in, uh, laws outlawing indentured servitude. And in fact, if a sailor uh, signed on to work, uh, he was not 
uh, he was not able to leave the ship. He could be imprisoned and was so often imprisoned um, if he deserted ship. Uh, in the late 19th century, the Sailors' Union, um, around the time Gould uh, joined the Union, uh, wrote this uh, piece of uh, uh, a pamphlet called The Red Record that really detailed the horrific uh, acts of violence committed against, uh, against sailors. And, and Gould, within the Union, and uh, as a Union activist and Union, union agent, is very much responsible for representing workers, when, uh, these sailors, when they get to... Uh, when they get into port and also making sure that the most violent captains, the most violent, um, uh, criminally violent, um, owners didn't get sailors on their ships. He would re- refuse workers to go on to these, uh, so-called hell ships where captains and mates terrorized, uh, workers. So this is where the 1906 maritime strike comes in, right? Could you explain to us briefly about that, uh, how that changes Ghoul and and, and the region more broadly? Right. So the 1906 maritime strike is really a key turning point in Ghoul's life, but also in the history of Pacific Coast uh, labor um, and labor relations. Um, But Ghoul... uh, settles into Aberdeen life by 1903, and he becomes uh, the elected agent for the Aberdeen Sailors Union of the Pacific. And that's an, that's an important point that I make in this book, is that union agents were elected by the entire union membership. So Gould clearly had a reputation within the Sailors Union for his activism, because several thousand uh men, working class men, belong to the union. And they uh, chose him as their representative for this uh, somewhat distant outpost in Aberdeen, long, uh, far away from headquarters in San Francisco. Uh, but within, uh, he does settle in Aberdeen um, and in Grays Harbor as uh, the area is really becoming an important lumber hub and an important lumber port. In fact, uh, by 1906, uh, the the towns of Aberdeen and its neighboring town of Hoquim, the port of Grays Harbor, is shipping out the most lumber of any, uh, any port in the world. And this is also a time when the cities are rapidly growing from just barely villages to uh, some of the largest cities in Washington state by 1910. And all a huge percentage of the uh, workers in the area are, are unionizing. And Ghoul is at the head of this, uh, of this union movement. In fact, uh, although it's possible that Seattle had a denser uh and King County, where Seattle is located, had a, a denser, uh, uh, more densely unionized uh, working class. Uh, many officials in the uh, Washington State Labor Federation suggested that Grays Harbor was the most heavily, uh, heavily unionized. And, uh, and these workers, 
a thousand, two thousand workers again and again elect Gould as the head, as first the vice president, then president, then president again of their local labor movement. He becomes very active in state labor politics. And he, in this role, he doesn't just collect a paycheck and sit and get uh, get lazy in his office. Instead, he serves as a walking delegate, uh, making sure that conditions on ship, uh, aboard ship, are uh, up to snuff. He serves as a translator, as a German immigrant. Uh, he could represent the mostly immigrant northern. European immigrant sailors in the Union. He represented sailors in court. He helped the homeless uh, sailors build shacks where they stayed uh, when they were in in town. He physically fought strike breakers and carried a gun to intimidate uh, violent bosses, powerful bosses who had so much power. Um, He also uh, asked the city councils of Aberdeen and Hoquim to install uh, streetlight so fewer people would fall in and die in the cities. He asked authorities to regulate saloons, knowing full well that was where so many uh, working class people were uh, in the first place getting drunk and falling into the water and drowning or being taken advantage of, drugged and killed. He spent so much time uh, writing letters to the editor to advocate for workers. Um, and and the 1906 maritime strike, we really see the tension between workers and employers boiling up into this massive uh, coastwide uh, strike between sailors and members of organized capital, the uh, the lumbermen and the and the um, shippers who had their own their employers organization to fight labor. So that the strike grew out of the uh, really pretty famous San Francisco uh, earthquake and uh, and fire that leveled the city, um, and uh, probably unsurprisingly, the uh, the the people in the Bay Area needed Northwest wood to rebuild, and so they had a heavy demand for Northwest wood that was being met in part by uh, Northwest mills, Northwest logging camps. And so uh, with the price of lumber sky high uh, in 1906, um, lumbermen and shippers were just making remarkable profits, raking in the profits. The the sailors union uh, demanded small wage increases and were were refused. Uh, They were refused by... uh, by captains and owners and the lumbermen who controlled so much of the trade. So as the strike, uh, so the sailors union declares strike in some places, the longshoremen join the sailors. Um, Grace Harbor was one of, uh, one of several real centers of the strike. And in, uh, in Aberdeen, uh, the uh, municipal government does what so often happens during strikes. They, uh, they swear in special police. They in- import strike breakers who are armed and, uh, and attacking, even killing uh, strikers during the strike. They also use injunctions and arrests um, against the strikers. And most of the local newspapers just are just brutal in their attacks on workers um, and strikers. Uh, 
but especially Billy Gould, who is the head of the labor movement, who is the head of the Sailors Union, is very much active in leading uh, organized labor, often in armed uh, armed picket lines, uh, picket lines, uh, as well as raids on non-union ships. They maintain. Uh, he also uh, exchanges. Uh, taunts and gunfire with some of the bosses in the local area. And I I think I need to step back for a second because that's just so unusual. It's so common in labor history for workers, union workers to fight strike breakers, to fight scabs and even police sometimes. But here was Billy Gould leading this union movement and uh, refusing to back down in the face of the bosses, the bosses who had so much power over the press, over local government and the like, um, you can imagine uh, what the response of the conservative press um, that referred to him as a pirate, as a thug uh, for his, uh, his use of quite militant tactics to keep the waterfront uh, free from scabs uh, and to keep it a unionized waterfront so that workers would have uh, labor protections. Right. You know, Aaron, you write in the book about this really transformative moment in Gould's life right after the strike. In a chapter you're calling Struggling or Struggle for Respectability, you know, he begins to identify as a clerk and a cigar merchant at certain points. Uh, what's causing that change? Right. That's, uh, yeah, that that might be my favorite chapter uh, of the book that's called Struggling for Respectability or something like that. Um, so Gould's life undergoes this dramatic shift, um, and I employ the notion of working class respectability. Uh, during his years in Aberdeen and Grays Harbor, his life go- undergoes a, some pretty dramatic changes uh, from the rough life of a sailor living aboard ship or in a shack, facing dangers aboard ship and being really occasionally Uh, injured or even tortured at the hands of captains and mates, and spending a good deal of time in saloons. Gould is often said to have had a tremendous appetite for drinking early in his uh, life on the harbor. Um, But by 1903-1904, Gould is settling into a permanent life in Aberdeen. He has an office job. He's a so-called white-collar sailor, and he's become a union official, a labor bureaucrat. His job duties are dramatically different from those of a sailor aboard ship. He also uh, is able to save enough money to uh, start a cigar stand, he, uh, to co-own a cigar stand, and he begins to join these fraternities like the Foresters and the Eagles, where some uh, skill, other uh, uh, skilled workers as well as uh, middle class people belong. He's also a resident of this area, which means he can vote. Very unusual for sailors to vote in 1905, 1906. He's one of five or six sailors uh, who were registered to vote in Aberdeen. Um, compare this with uh, uh, small businessmen who, uh, who all could vote, almost all of them. And, and in 1905, he marries a working class woman named Betsy Hager, Bessie Hager, sorry, and she purchases and runs a rooming house uh, that marketed to, quote, gentlemen along the rivers. Uh, 
She and Billy both live there for several years. They have permanent renters, including uh, prominent uh, local saloon owners. Uh, He's not really living the life of a rough migratory worker any longer. Instead, he's moving in increasingly respectable circles. And this is also when Aberdeen's population is uh, a decade when it goes from about 3,000 to 14,000. And so he's there uh, becoming established when many other people are, and he's settling into this life of respectability, um, spending a lot of time in fraternal activities and the like. The, the problem, though, uh, was that he was a worker and that he was a militant union leader. He had no intention of selling out his co-workers. He had no intention of uh, simply collecting a salary and sitting in his office and doing nothing. He knew full well the way that captains and other employers treated uh, sailors, again, the men he called comrades in, uh, in speeches and in writing. Uh, and, and he broke the law to defend, uh, to defend their interests. He, uh, he raided ships, uh, to make sure that, uh, non-unionists wouldn't break picket lines. He'd spent time in court. He spent time behind bars and, For his militant defense of workers, he becomes an absolute hero in the labor movement. Uh, They they elect him again to be president of the local labor council. He founds this uh, almost quasi-industrial union called the Waterfront Federation that is um, an organization of all the militant workers who work along uh, the waterfront, including the longshoremen, the shingle weavers. But he's also enemy number one to local bosses. He he is the only person who shuts down their their real money-making machine in the first decade of the 20th century. He shuts down the port and he wins the strike by resorting to militancy. And for that, uh, local newspapers... Uh, editors who all belong to the Chamber of Commerce, where so much employer activity takes place, Uh, local bosses, uh, they refer to him as a gangster, a pirate, a felon who threatened peace and stability of this growing city. Uh, Yeah, that's a great point in the book that you also make. It's about he's building this really long list of enemies during his period. Could you describe what What's happening and why that's significant, both for him and also for the labor politics that are that are ongoing? So in the aftermath of the 1906 uh, strike, Gould is getting a longer and longer list of enemies. And he's certainly uh, the subject of a campaign to eliminate him, as union activists so often are. But this also is a time in which employers, led by the very wealthy local lumbermen, are and get engaged in an open shop campaign. They go from one powerful union after another and, uh, and defeat, uh, and defeat local, uh, local unions in strikes. They, uh, refuse to deal with unions and they, in the case of longshoremen set up a non-union Steve door firm to, uh, compete with union, uh, with union workers. This is part of a national open shop campaign that uh, really was 
dedicated to destroying the labor movement and was very effective in many places, including in Grays Harbor. Uh, But locally in Aberdeen, uh, what happens is that employers form uh, their first of several citizens committees, this this name used by employers for union busting operations, uh, later uh, uh, citizens committees in Aberdeen with the same membership would engage in vigilante activities, violently attacking workers. Um, this early citizens committee, though, uh, operates mostly behind the scenes, targeting ghouls. So they reach out to um, to uh, labor spies first. Uh, probably members of the Pinkerton agency, but later they turn to the big guns of labor spies, of private detectives that target uh, workers. They go to the Thiel detective agency. And over uh, uh, throughout 1909, uh, there are Thiel agents in, uh, in Grays Harbor looking to uh, create a uh, uh, a case against school and starting to spread rumors about him as a murderer and him as a criminal. This is already, this is coinciding with what's going on in the press where ghoul is constantly being attacked as again, a pirate and a thug and the head of, of, um, uh, a local criminal operation rather than a union. So ghoul uh, uh, Ghoul is accused of, in the public eye, of murdering uh, dozens, even more than a hundred workers. Um, but he's actually arrested um, uh, on and charged with killing one person, um, his very good friend, a man named Charles Hadberg. Uh, Charles Hadberg was a sailor who who lived with Billy Gould um, and who Gould worked with very closely in 1909, especially. Um, so Gould is put on trial. He's arrested in February 1910, um, and he is put on trial later in the year, um, and he's convicted of committing one murder, this one uh, Charles Hadberg um, uh, he's convicted largely on the testimony of two men, uh, that la- uh, labor spy uh, from the Thiel agency who was hired to produce evidence against Ghoul and to remove him, as spies so often are, labor spies so often are, and then Ghoul's friend, uh, another friend named John Klingenberg. Uh, Klingenberg was a very small uh that does matter in this uh, Scandinavian immigrant who was a sailor, uh, Klingenberg, um, in uh, in uh, late 1909, early 1910, uh, takes off on a ship, sails to Mexico um, as a member of the Sailors Union. But when he's in Mexico, he tries to leave the ship. Um, he is then drugged. Uh, by the captain of the ship, uh, tr- uh, kidnapped or shanghaied, depending on what term you want to use, brought back to Gray's Harbor, um, and then uh, interrogated, likely tortured by private citizens, perhaps the uh, 
perhaps members of the Thiel agency, and told that he needs to testify against Ghoul. Um, he does end up testifying against Ghoul, saying that he pulled the trigger to kill Hadberg. Klingenberg says he pulled the trigger. Uh, he's later also convicted of murder and sentenced to prison, uh, at which point he says somewhat... Uh, <laughs> somewhat famously or infamously, whatever, that uh, the whole thing was a put-up job. Um, Throughout this time period, there's another of Ghoul's friends who had disappeared named John Hoffman, a cigar dealer. Uh, His body was never never located, and Ghoul was never put on trial or convicted of that. But once Ghoul is... Uh, behind bars in February, what happens is just just an amazing situation unfolding. These newspapers that had for so long seen Ghoul as a uh, the Ghoul of Gray's Harbor that had uh, accused him uh, at least privately of be- and often in print of being a monster, they begin uh, to tie him to every crime that has ever happened almost in Gray's Harbor history. They accuse him of arson uh, and uh, they accuse him of murdering uh, dozens or more than a hundred men. They accuse him of robbery and everything else imaginable. They blame him for this so-called floater fleet, uh, this uh, collection of drowned men found in the Wishka and Chehalis rivers. What they don't mention, of course, is that a large percentage of those drowned men were members of his union, who he, of course, had uh, really gone to the mat to protect and had done everything to protect them. Um, and had actually risked his life to protect them and had gone to jail to protect them. Um, so this this story, I think, unfortunately, um, once it gets created in 1910, it just spreads like wildfire because there's not really much of a counter-narrative. Ghoul's allies in the labor movement protect him. They testify. They even testify that the body uh, that Ghoul is con- convicted of killing, uh, that it didn't belong to Hadberg, um, and they refuse that person a union uh, a union burial, even though he was supposedly, uh, if it was Hadberg, he was a, uh, a member of the sailors union. Um, and the hist- historians out there, I suppose that's everybody, uh, listening or most, uh, probably know about chronicling America, the, uh, newspaper database. That's so great. Um, for fortunately or unfortunately the Aberdeen Herald, uh, a, uh, really anti-labor newspaper from uh, Ghoul's hometown that was published at this time period. It's entirely searchable. And so, so many uh, true crime sleuths out there have just taken the story presented uh, by Ghoul's enemies in the newspaper, this thinly sourced or entirely fabricated story and, uh, and written about it. You know, it makes me wonder too more broadly about, you know, why is Gould's story so important for our understanding of how class works in the West? Right. Yeah. So class and class conflict is really at the center of this book. I, I kind of went out of my way to make that clear in the uh, introduction. And 
I think the story of Billy Ghoul and the story of this area is really, um, really doesn't make sense at all without thinking about the importance of class. And so there's, I think, two ways of looking at uh, class in this history of Ghoul and Gray's Harbor. The, the first is that class really framed Ghoul's experiences um, and the experiences of people throughout the American West and in other industrial capitalist societies. What, what I mean by this is that looking at Ghoul's life through the lens of class makes so much more sense than the usual true crime stories that so often portray the world as good versus bad people, or uh, in the case of Ghoul, these, these uh, you know, crazy bad people just going around murdering people to satisfy their urges. Uh, so this story of Ghoul really follows that, that he's just a, you know, a deviant who has to satisfy his urges to kill. And what what's so tragic about that, uh, although I think that's very characteristic of true crime popular writing, uh, is that it fails to account for almost everything. It fails to account for his own words and the words of his co-workers. It fails to account for his life of union activism, his brave commitment to uh, risk his life and freedom, uh, advocating for other immigrant workers. Uh, of course, white immigrant workers. I want to really, uh, at some point, I, I need to stress that he was also, he was no hero, no working class hero. He was a vicious racist and responsible for forming an uh, uh an organization in Grays Harbor and was the first president of an uh, Asian exclusion league. Um, so, uh, the, but the history of Ghoul's world and life that I wrote places class at the center. And that takes uh, seriously the historical context. It looks at the importance of violence against workers on the job and in the community that Ghoul very much fought. These were so often class conflicts. Uh, I think more specifically, uh, in terms of discussing class, of course, uh, intersection, its intersections with race, ethnicity, gender, and other identities really helps to make sense of the world that Ghoul lived in uh, and the experience that experiences that he and other comrades faced. In the first place, they were migratory workers. Uh, as sailors and other migratory workers throughout the West faced, uh, this was often a very violent life where worker, where employers um, often acted with impunity against them. In the case of sailors, would often flog them, would uh, shanghai them, would imprison them. Um, and that when workers tried to organize, they were so often arrested, jailed, thrown in prison, killed even. Uh, but also the, the importance of class in this story is really obvious uh, when you think about uh, the law. For example, in terms of voting, many of Ghoul's uh, enemies in this, in this book, in this story, are, are politicians. But at this time period before 1910, only a tiny percentage of people could vote. And thanks to so many good historians of suffrage and of uh, dis 
disenfranchisement. We know that uh, women and we know that people of color often couldn't vote. Um, but it's also true at this time that uh, very few workers could vote in many Western cities. Uh, migratory workers had never, uh, often never established residency. They had no say in local politics. In, in uh, Gould's time in Aberdeen, it was common for only about one in 30 residents to vote. Um, this is the same with juries. We have this idea, this mythical idea of being tried by one's, uh, one's peers, but the jury that eventually convicts Ghoul of one act of murder was hardly his, uh, his peers. It was drawn from a list of property-owning males. And then when he did go to jail, when he did go to prison, and in fact, any time a historian will look through the police registry or the jail registry, what do you notice? Everybody, if occupations are listed, everybody or almost everybody is a worker of some sort. And when Ghoul gets to the Washington State Penitentiary, he could hardly have avoided sailors. There were dozens of sailors there, um, really disproportionate share of the prison population. Uh, this last week, I've spent some time uh, at the Washington State Archives and just looking at police records and so much of what the police do and what they were doing had to do with regulating the poor, uh, protecting property, really um, uh, criminalizing poverty, uh, arresting uh, people for uh, for being publicly drunk, Um and the like, and otherwise, uh, of course, also um, sometimes attacking picket picketers. So class is really at the center of this story, and I think it, it helps to make so much more sense of what's going on. You know, Aaron, this is such a great book, and I was just wondering, for people who are reading it, for listeners right now, you know, what do you hope that they're going to take away from this book? Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for asking that. Um, so one, one, one of the takeaways, is, and one that I haven't really focused on here, is that when talking about labor history, it's so important that we think about those on the other side of the class division. Because uh, labor historians were, were often very good at talking about workers and about working class activity, but employers are so good at acting collectively, you know, uh, understanding their class interests and uh, working to defend them. That's what we see in the case of uh, this book. It's what we see in so many labor histories. And combined, employers have so much power to influence the police, the press, uh, of course, workplaces which they own, uh, the law and the courts. Um, and very much related to this, that it's dangerous. It always has been dangerous. It's dangerous now. It was dangerous in Ghoul's time. And uh, to organize working people, uh, the dangers of organizing working people, advocating for working people, uh, I mean, it's really difficult. Ghoul ended up going to prison, but how many of these... Uh, labor activists in any strike end up going to jail or getting fired, or in the case of uh, Joe Hill, Sacco and Vanzetti, the Haymarket martyrs, uh, 
Martin Luther King in, in one way or another have their lives um, ruined, even taken from them. Um, when he was in the Washington State Penitentiary, Gould uh, was surrounded by many uh, members of the Radical Industrial uh, Workers of the World Union who had been convicted of criminal syndicalism, which outlawed membership in their organization. So Gould could have hardly noticed uh, or hardly avoid noticing the class nature of the composition of the prisons. Uh, I guess the other piece of this, and this is probably uh, fairly apparent, is that it's just very, uh, I call this, uh, this story that I've uh, tried to deconstruct in this book, the myth of the ghoul of Grace Harbor. And since this is uh, the new, new books in the American West, I know many uh, historians of the West focus on myths, but when we, uh, when we face myths, that are so often um, really entrenched in what we think about the world, um, whether it's the myth of America as this land of freedom, uh, et cetera, this myth of the ghoul of Grace Harbor, it's really important to interrogate that and to think about who benefits and who doesn't benefit, who suffers uh, because of that myth. The ghoul myth really uh, is one of the founding myths of this uh, of this town and of Gray's Harbor because it it uh, the people who eventually uh, convict him who eventually get rid of him they're they are uh, often seen as these founding fathers of Gray's Harbor these benevolent people who uh, came together to eliminate this criminal monster and make Gray's Harbor safe for settlement it is uh, it's an important myth um, in this region's history. Uh, so, well, Aaron, this is such a great book, and I know it just came out. So, you're, I'm assuming you're going to be giving some talks, and because of COVID, those are likely going to be virtual. Um, but do you have any sense of what you're going to be working on next? Um, do you have anything else in the mix right now? Not to not to put pressure on you for that. Right. Yeah. Th- yeah. Thank you. I. I um, so, I. I know this podcast will be on the internet forever, or whatever forever means. Um, but this is, of course, <laughs> the, uh, this talk is going on during uh, during COVID, and uh, so much uh, of what historians do is exceptionally difficult right now. Um, but I but I have taken um, taken some time to step back and think about next projects, and uh, I do very much enjoy research and writing. Um, so the. The two projects that I'm working on right now, um, one is nearly done and one is, let's say, halfway there. Uh, the, uh, the first is my dissertation to book project. I'm trying to convert my dissertation to a book, and it is a study of uh, community-based radicalism and um, employer anti-radicalism, employer collective action against workers. Um uh, in uh, in Grays Harbor uh, from about 1900 to 1940, because this area is it's the center a center of trade unionism during Gould's time, but it's also uh, one of, if not the largest center of uh, wobbly activity uh, all the way throughout the 1920s, um, and as well as a large center of socialist and communist activity. Uh, the second one, and I think 
this one has the potential to reach a wider audience, perhaps. But I have been working for some time on a biography of a man named Albert Johnson, a congressman from Washington, and a, uh, a newspaper editor, actually from Hoquim, which is Aberdeen's uh, uh Twin City or neighboring city. He uh, he is in. Uh, he's a editor at the time that Ghoul is arrested. And he actually suggests in an editorial that Ghoul should be lynched. Um, but he then is elected uh, to Congress in 1912 and serves until 1933. Uh, he's most. He, in many ways, he might be the most important person to come from Washington's coastal area. And I know, and I know that might sound strange because so few people have heard of him, but he is the head of the uh, house of representatives immigration committee in the 1920s and the 1924 immigration act that uh, uh, puts all these racist quotas on um, immigration and, you know, bans Asian immigration into the country. It's called the Johnson Reed act. And so he is the leading uh, immig- immigrant restrictionist in Congress during the 1920s. And um, so I'm working on a biography of him uh, that I think can really uh, explain this, this period of, uh, of uh, nativism that's so, so prominent in the 1920s um, and that gets expressed in lots of different ways, including with the Ku Klux Klan, but also with uh, Johnson and the immigration laws. So, yeah, those sound excellent. I, I do want to ask you one final question though. And it's about, it's about writing. Um, one of the things I've noticed that you've done here and, and a few other authors I've spoken to as well have done, um, is reconstruct sort of working class biographies, um, ordinary people's lives. That's incredibly hard to do. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts, um, or recommendations for people, uh, on how to do that, on how to reconstruct these social worlds of these working class people, um, and also what you've learned from that process um, in writing a biography like that. Yeah, that that's that's good. It's um, it, it's it's weird because I uh, probably um, in class will uh, talk about not liking biographies very much because they are so often. Uh, as uh, I think most social and labor historians would say, uh, written about old, dead white men. Um, I, I mean, these uh, uh, this constant stream of founding fathers' books. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't read those. Um, but I, but I, <laughs> but uh, I, I do. Uh, there is something fairly appealing about writing a biography in the case of Ghoul of a working class person because they're so often written out of history and we see uh, we see them as just the nameless, faceless uh, you know crowds uh, of uh, of uh, of history and yet these are real people. These are real people who had lives, who did work, who had goals, who, uh, you know, had problems. And I think it can be uh, really illuminating. Uh, it, first of all, really important to think about working people as actually having their lives matter rather than just being sort of the junk on the, uh, on the scrap heap of history. But also, 
um, it's biographies can be really good lenses into uh, seeing these wider themes. I think people are, are much more willing to pick up a book that looks like a biography than, uh, than they are perhaps a rather dense community study, for instance, or, uh, you know, other types of, of history. And so I think that it's a nice way to take a chunk of time, in this case, uh, a person's life, um, and to tell so much about society through that person's experiences. Um, in terms of uh, sources and sort of the pitfalls, it's um, I'm definitely experiencing the two sides of that, where in the case of Ghoul, the sources that exist are uh, for his early life, you know, almost non-existent, and then for his later life, uh, uh, written by his enemies to uh, to mock him and to uh, tell the world that he's a criminal monster. Um, and so I'm actually left in that case, uh, just pouring through every newspaper article for the over the course of about a decade, uh, looking at all union records to see if he's mentioned. So really, in that case, with Ghoul, so much of it is. Um, so much, much of it was looking for a needle in a haystack and also using uh, background sources to paint a picture of, of his life. Um, the, the Albert Johnson project is just the opposite because a congressman in office for 20 years who published newspapers throughout his life and wrote constantly and, um, and was also his whole life, uh, middle class and rich. So there's sources all over the place. Um, and even, and just, I, I, I have this, uh, maybe weird obsession with getting every possible source and that's just going to be impossible for, for Johnson. Um, but I think in his case, it'll be, um, people want to read, about uh, immigration and uh, and racism and immigration restrictions, I think probably now as much as ever. And to see this long history of anti-immigrant activism, of um, of nativism, um, and of uh, of politicians, it, just enormously popular politicians, um, you know, riding the wave of anti-immigrant hysteria uh, to the highest. Uh, highest halls of power, then I, I think that's a, that's a story that, that needs to be told. Yeah. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. We're excited to have you on your new book, The Port of Missing Men is out now through the University of Washington. Uh, and thanks so much. You have a great, this will come out after the new year. <laughs> so I hope you had a great new year. Thank you so much. It was really, really nice to talk to you, Ryan. Yeah. Take care. Uh, you too. Bye-bye.